it's unbelievable how every time more and more, let's say, freaks of football who can follow Korea, who can follow Thailand, China, who can follow Africa football, who knows? There is freaks of football. That's what we should have called it. Hi again, no news today, but a couple of topics we've carried over to another bonus edition here of Lockdown Football. I'm Will Downing alongside my fellow commentators Dimitro Zhulai of Satanta Ukraine and Ukraine National TV, Stefan Jorny of ESPN Africa and Mark Rodden of Virgin Media Sport and various World Feed commitments. Later on we'll be going through some commentators that have inspired us down through the years and in upcoming episodes we'll be hearing other commentators' choices. Well, looking back at some classic games which are getting another airing on TV, last week it was the 1982 World Cup semi-final of the BBC between West Germany and France. Both, in many ways, had been fortunate to get out of their respective groups. France had lost their opening game against England, had beaten Kuwait 4-1 at a point where the Kuwaiti players, you may remember, were threatening to walk off the pitch. And then, with a one-all draw against Czechoslovakia, squeaked through in second place behind England. Had the Czechs won that, they would have gone through and France would have been eliminated. As for West Germany, well, they lost their opening match sensationally to Algeria, beat Chile 4-1 in their second. And you might just remember the 1-0 win over Austria where the ball was kicked around by arrangement. That saw West Germany go through and Algeria denied. That meant they went into the second phase, another group with the Germans drawing nil-nil with England, who also drew with Spain, and they went out. A thumping 2-1 win saw West Germany go through above the hosts. And in both countries, in both Germany and France, that 1982 World Cup semi-final is simply known as the Night of Seville. West Germany ahead on 17 minutes through Pierre Lebarski, Michel Platini equalising on 27. Then that astonishing second half Challenged by Harold Schumacher and Patrick Batterstone. He was only on the pitch 10 minutes, needed to go off with oxygen on a stretcher. Amaros hit the bar in the 90th minute. Into extra time we went. Tresor and Gires putting France 3-1 up. Everything, Stefan, was looking so good from there. All right, well, and that's uh, the problem started when Carlos Rumeliga uh, <laughs> came on the pitch. Unfortunately, um the team, you know, couldn't respond. And I think physically France uh, struggled to finish the game, even though Giresse scored a great goal after 98 minutes. But unfortunately, Rumeniga scored the second goal for West Germany, but Fischer, one of eight minutes, equalized and went to the penalty shootouts. But it was uh, a remarkable game, especially what happened with Batistone. The referee could have sent off Schumacher and didn't do it. But that game, even though France lost it on penalties, Epitomize what was France at the time, a fast, fluid French team with a lot of technical players. If you look at Platini with Giresse, uh, Tigana uh, in the middle of the park with Bernard Gengini, who's going to be replaced in uh, 1986 by Luis Fernandez. But those players were absolutely magnificent technically. And they're all attacking mining players from Tigana, Giresse, Platini, Gengini, Rocheteau, Six, who played for Aston Villa for a little bit, were really attacking-minded. And uh, Michel Dago, who was at the World Cup in 1978, France didn't qualify for the Euro 1980, which was won by Germany in the final against Belgium. But West Germany was not playing a pretty football, but uh, it was very physical with some players like uh, Ben Forster, Karen Forster, Manfred Kass, very, very physical side. 
and unfortunately France couldn't compete in, in extra times to maintain those two goals uh, advantage and Humeriga came on and, and Fischer but ultimately France uh, was was remembered the team playing you know some tremendous football and everyone remembered that uh, that the game in Sevilla in Ramon Sanchez Pizjuan it was amazing and uh, I was a kid at the time it was a brilliant game to watch but unfortunately France you know didn't make it but there was a case that the French substitutions didn't work because Batistón came on and then he went off injured, Christian López replacing him. So that was two substitutions allowed at the time and that was theirs wasted, if you like. Germany brought on Karl-Heinz Rummenegger, who scored within five minutes that lovely little flick at the near post to get Germany back into it, a 3-2 down. But they also brought on Horst Rubesch, the man dubbed by Jimmy Begears, the man they call the monster who stepped up for that famous winning penalty to make him a German hero forevermore. That's right, and also match was uh, scored that uh, winning for uh, West Germany. But uh, I have to say, Rummenigge was uh, was definitely the uh, the right substitute for Germany. It changed completely the game. Bosis, who's absolutely magnificent player, missing the penalties like DJ Six also with the false penalty uh, missed. Stilicke missed also his penalty, but at the end of the day, the German dominated us at the uh, extra times. But also mentally, the, the, they were definitely stronger than the French. Could we say maybe the French were tired, you know, take the penalties? I think we were just playing above expectations. No one could see the French team going to that uh, semi-finals against West Germany because you have to remember, France was absolutely no one in the world football at the time. It was coming from, nothing from Norway, but uh, no one expected the French to be at that level. In 1978, we would be knocked out, you know, very early in the, uh, the World Cup in Argentina. And, uh, but Michel Lego made that team so successful and knowing exactly what type of player you want to bring in. That generation was going to uh, win two years after that, the uh, European Championship in France in 1984 against Spain in the final. But surely those players will remember for that game. It's an iconic game, and, uh, but that's football. Uh, we, li- well, we like it in a way. And the thing about that French side was, I mean, they reached two World Cup semi-finals, beaten by West Germany in both, European champions in between in 84, and then nothing. They just fell off the cliff. Didn't make the next Euros or World Cup? Yeah, sorry, Will, but I think mentally there was a weakness for the French side against West Germany. That happened in Mexico in 1986. We know Germany after the, the unbelievable game against uh, Brazil. And uh, it's something uh, for the French team for a while until 1998, and things have changed. They tried to play the beautiful game. Uh, did they have the mental strength to overcome West Germany? Obviously, it was not the case. And everyone in France remember that style, that specific attacking football being delivered by the French team at the time with Platini and Tigana and GIS. It was, a, I have to say, it was a magnificent game and uh, but the drama was all over the pitch from, again, Schumacher assaulting Batistone, really, like, and not been, not been sent off. It's, it's, it's amazing. The referee couldn't make the right decision, and, but that's, that's history, basically. The thing about that that I find remarkable, Will, is that... Uh... Schumacher's the pantomime villain. He said, you know, I knocked out France twice because he knocked out Badistone and then he saved two penalties to knock them out of the World Cup. There was controversy afterwards because Badistone had a couple of uh, lost teeth and cracked ribs and uh, damaged vertebrae. And Schumacher, after the game, was relieved, he said, made a flippant remark afterwards. He says, well, I'll pay for the teeth, which didn't go down well. And looking back, it's incredible what happened a week after Badistan was due to get married the next day, so whatever, eight, nine days after this match. Schumacher 
went to the offices of not a very big French paper to meet Battiston and apologize to him and discuss it. And they had a, a sort of a press conference with journalists present. Incredible stuff. It also led to a, a huge uh, amount of animosity between France and Ger- West Germany at the time that had kind of had gone. But I think it was Hidalgo said afterwards that really reignited tensions. And uh, so much so that France were desperate to beat them. They lost to them in 86. They lost to Germany in 2014. And that's why they celebrated so much having won the semi-finals of uh, Euro 2016 against Germany as well. In many ways, that semi-final in 86 was a damn squib because uh, the goals, particularly the free kick from Bremer, which just flipped in low beyond Joel Batz, just sort of set France off on the back foot and they never really recovered from that. It probably still hurts. Like They've won World Cup subsequently in 98 and in 2018, but not having even reached the World Cup final maybe in 82-86 probably hurts that little bit there. Definitely, especially that game because 3-1 up with 98 minutes played, including the eight minutes of extra time. Some of the French players talked about, you know, we kept going to get another goal. We were so on top. But as Stefan said, Rummenigge coming off the bench, he was the captain. He was the reigning European footballer of the year. He was carrying an injury, but he still made such a difference to that German team. It's incredible that France didn't close out the game considering how uneventful extra time is now normally. Just an incredible game for the Schumacher-Badiston incident, but also, as Platini said, it had every emotion that you experience in life in that 120 minutes, plus the penalties as well. Incredible. Well, it's almost 40 years on. I still don't understand how France lost that. No, honestly, uh, because we were talking about uh, France v Brazil in 86, and you just mentioned the semi-final, and compare how France played against Brazil and what kind of game it was, and then you were playing against the German team. They wasn't much better than the French team at the time in 86. And they losing to them without a chance. Maybe because, yeah, four years previously, you had this fantastic game when you actually had it in the pocket. You, you just sort of scored another goal probably. But that's the thing. That France in 82, they're probably similar to Brazil in 82. They didn't know how to play for a draw. They didn't know how to kill the game off, as they like to say. They just wanted to win the game. And they were winning it. And, yeah, of course, it's a big thing when you have Rummenigge coming on as a substitute. And then you've got Rubisch as well. And it's, the, the, those two could, could have uh, turned any game on its head. But there, there's another thing that I wanted to mention because we usually think of that team. West Germany side of the 80s when they won the European Championship two years before the World Cup. Played actually two World Cup finals in a row. And then there was the third one that they won in the 90s. We were talking about 80s now. So they had all those major finals. And we usually were thinking of that team, yeah, predictable, boring maybe. But how many games did they win being behind? during the game. So it turns out that these predictable Germans were the ones who believed more than anyone in the unpredictability of football. So they were scoring those goals in the last minutes. They were scoring two against France when it was absolutely impossible, you were thinking, to get those two goals. So we also, yeah, we have to give the credit to to, to the German side for what they did. But still, it's... Unbelievable how, first of all, how Schumacher stayed on the pitch 
after what he did and how France managed to lose that particular game. Because the final between France and Italy, well, that could have been something else. Yeah, absolutely. And Italy want to uh, win that the World Cup. But, but again, like Marius Trezo with the uh, centre-back for France scoring a magnificent goal. And everyone thought, you know, this is it. You know, we're going to uh, beat the Germans. And then GIS making three uh, after 98 minutes. And uh, that was it. But again, I will just to highlight the mental strength for the Germans and Rummenigger and the, the coaching, Jupp uh, Dervel. I think he was uh, quite smart to put uh, Rummenigge and uh, Robert on the pitch. And at the end of the day, that makes the difference uh, in the last few minutes of the extra times. It had a huge effect uh, on the, the penalty shootouts. It's, it's unfortunate, but again, I think that team will have learned from losing against Germany in the semi-finals and used, if you want, that pain and because it hurts, obviously, and in 1984. But at that time, that group of players struggled to beat West Germany. In 1986, we had the same problem with Joel Batz uh, making mistakes on a free kick from Bremer. And Jean-Luc Ettori was really the weakness in 1982, if you remember, a very small keeper. There was question between Jean Castaneda or Jean-Luc Ettori. Only five foot eight. It's, you won't, obviously, nowadays, this type of keepers, you know, doesn't exist anymore. You can't see a keeper five foot eight playing, you know, anywhere in the top five uh, league in Europe. It's not happening anymore. Maybe, you know, in the MLS, we have one or two small keepers, but Jean-Luc Couture, uh, to me, was definitely one of the weaknesses of the French team. And we've seen the penalty shootout and the goals conceded as well. And the interesting thing as well, from the German point of view, that wasn't a popular team because of partly what they did in that Austria game, scored after 11 minutes, then the two teams just didn't play. In Germany, that was went down very badly. The commentator at the time said this was a disgrace to football. The team were called gangsters. Uh, the biggest tabloid said, shame on you afterwards. And then the Schumacher thing would have sealed it for most neutrals that this German team are not to be liked. They want to win by any means possible. Interestingly, Schumacher, even in 2014 when he was interviewed, said, you know, I don't really have any regrets. The regrets I have are that I should have, you know, showed more concern at the time after the Battistone incident, certainly should have gone to see him in hospital. You know, Battiston told the story that he woke up in the medical room when they were three one up and didn't know where he was and going through all these emotions. And, and Schumacher's reaction Schumacher's reaction to the incident, sorry, was was to wait, ready to take the goal kick, cheering gum. Come on, let's get on with it, guys. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, Mark. That he was glowing at the the uh, uh, the stand, looking at even the French supporters and said, Look, I'm ready to go. Like uh, can you can you remove the Battiston from the pitch and uh, we can get on with the game? That was unbelievable, like typical from Schumacher and that press conference in, I think it was done by the French border between Germany and, and, and France. And uh, because Paris all the time was playing for Mess, and that thing was just a thing for the media. And if you remember uh, the context of the game, uh, we were just more or less uh, 30 years after post you know, World War II. And as, as Mark mentioned, the villains, uh, the Germans, yeah, that's what you know the French media play on that. Say, look, uh, France, you know, the. Uh, World War Two, and you know we have to take revenge, and uh, but unfortunately, West Germany, but uh, France on the day. Worth pointing out that between Germany and West Germany, they've only ever lost one penalty shootout in history. Their first one, 44 years ago, in the 1976 Euros final to Czechoslovakia, and losing in the end to a true Penenka penalty, as it was Penenka who took it. They should have seen that coming. Keep an eye out for that Euro 76 final. It'll probably be shown somewhere soon. So when we were doing our second programme at the start of April, we decided to do our first retro feature all about 
commentary heroes to fill five or ten minutes at the end. An hour later, it was obvious it was probably going to be best to hold it over. So here it is, and it looks like I'm going first. I think for me, in terms of the past, uh, Jimmy McGee, who was absolutely astounding for a, a lot of his career, just a wonderful turn of phrase. Again, like another of my all-time favourites, Barry Davis, very, very versatile, found himself working on a huge amount of sports, but just as a man who was the number one commentator as he was until 1985 on Irish television, just always had a way of coming out with a wonderful phrase. The 82 World Cup semi-final, Horst Rubesch stepping up to take the winning penalty for West Germany against France. Here he is, Horst Rubesch, the man they call the monster. There was obviously different class, big pause, different class at the start and finish of Maradona's great goal against England because obviously... What else can you say in a position like that? It, it was quite curious that for that World Cup quarterfinal, England against Argentina, that RTE, BBC and ITV had essentially what would, you would call their designated number two commentators on, on that game for all of those channels. I think Barry Davis, a man who was just utterly incredible, a wonderful turn of phrase. He's still working, but we don't hear very much of him these days. He's in his 70s now. Wonderful football commentator. Just a man who could put immense drama into anything, but not just football, tennis, hockey, ice hockey, gymnastics, did a little bit of athletics as well. And a man who was pretty much, I would guess, ubiquitous during my youth. If he was on a game, you knew that one way or another it was going to be a good game. Just a wonderful voice and just somebody who could pluck a phrase out of the air. On radio, Peter Jones, for very much the same era, sadly died at the peak of his career when he was 60 years old. It was 30 years ago this week, which is sort of what brought it to mind. And there was a BBC Five Live documentary about him during the week. Again, somebody who could just bring football into your living rooms. Like I discovered sort of BBC Radio 2 football coverage when it was on that station when I was something like nine years old. I'd been given a radio for my birthday and sort of flicking through the dial late at night found their football coverage. And he was just wonderful, evocative commentator. I would say my favourites of the current age um, on a weekly basis would be Steve Wilson. I just think he's got a wonderful dynamic voice, always comes across really very much up for it, wonderfully researched. And two men that you don't hear a lot of in this part of the world, but who are very prominent elsewhere, Peter Drury and John Champion, who I think are very much from the from the Barry Davis mould, wonderful evocative commentators, and who just seem to have the right phrasing at the right time. And every time they're on a game, it's an event. Okay, it's all about the English commentators, Will, isn't it? But uh, I'm going to broaden my spectrum here. I will go to the French side of it and uh, Thierry Roland maybe Mark you know, knows about him he was definitely the French voice uh, well the, the, the voice of French football and, uh, and the French team as well he did commentary I think for 13 World Cups 9 uh, European Championship and did commentary over, over 1000 games but also did commentary a little bit on athletics and boxing and Olympic games but he was the French um, main commentator and uh, he passed away in 2012, and there was a minute of silence organized during, I think it was France against Sweden, and during the Euro 2012. And uh, yeah, it was a it was a big loss for French football and uh, for the media in France. And uh, some very uh, eloquent quotes, you know, from him as well. Very uh, uh, for France when he's in commentary, not very objective with France uh, uh, when the, when they were playing and. Uh, 
that you know made him one of the best commentators in France. He will be remembered, you know, as one of the uh, best commentator in the country. Going back to uh, the more uh, generic spectrum of the English country, uh, to me, as a Frenchman, I've been you know living in Ireland for a while. I tell you what, I give you a quote, and you can tell me who is that. Just a bit of a game here. Oh, that tackle was so hard, so it probably hurt his whole family. Who said that? John Mudson. I think he had a very distinct voice, and uh, I really like him as a commentary and uh, pundit. And uh, I think I would say one of the best commentators you know I've heard and enjoyed in him from England. You know, from the continent, somebody from, you know, outside of the English-speaking world originally, what is it about John Motson that uh, appealed to you greatly? He's still, he's still working, he's on TalkSport these days, having left the BBC after 50 years in, in 2018. Just the voice, the voice, very distinctive and, uh, and very free commentary as well. And I think he had the full package of a commentator. It didn't, yeah, just like the voice and his tone, the way he was covering games. That's pretty it, uh, Will. And I think it's good knowledge about football and knowing, you know, when to intervene, not to uh, sometimes commentary will, will over-commentate the game. And that's, that's going to be an issue. It was not like that. And I think it's, the country were very free. And uh, I really enjoy uh, listening to uh, John Mudson. The thing which I noticed, because like one of the first times I'd have heard him, apart from like, Match of the Day, which used to go out on Irish television after the Late Late Show when that was on a Saturday night. And then for the second half of 1985, there were no TV deals. So that's when the the whole focus, I suppose, of Irish football coverage changed and it was all about the live games after that. But occasionally when those live games had started, we would actually get either the BBC or the ITV commentary. And the thing I noticed about John Motson and Barry Davis from a BBC point of view, when we would get live coverage of games that they were just doing for highlights on BBC, is that they would talk a lot less and they'd leave large pauses and that, you, you know, the crowd would come out a lot more, which I thought was quite interesting compared to the style that we had and probably still have in our country. Yeah, I agree. Like, I mean, other country definitely killed the well, killed the game to me. Like, because people can watch it on TV, so you don't need to do uh, to explain all the time what's what's happening on the pitch. It's about leaving blanks when it's required, and uh, I think John Mudson was doing that perfectly well. Yeah, I was always told, you know, let the game breathe. And it's interesting we're talking about Barry Davis. There's a very good um, podcast series, uh, 90 Minute Football. He was featured on it. And one of the things he said was, you know, he had to tell his co-commentator at one point, you know, everything you're saying is, is great, but you're, you know, you're overloading the viewer. And uh, he said as well that, you know, there's, there's a danger that you can talk at the viewer and not allow the viewer form their own opinion you know it's like i'm trying to watch the game here sort of thing he would have been up there as well he's he's instinctive he was very good and you know had the right lines at the right time obviously um you know growing up in ireland and seeing the 1990 world cup as a kid you'll you'll always remember that line from george hamilton when david o'leary scored his winning uh, penalty against Romania in the uh, World Cup knockout stages just before he, he scores it he says a nation holds its breath which that's that's gone down in in, in history as, as a great line someone I loved as um, a person with parents from Donegal and and you know big links to Scotland up there I used to le- listen to uh, BBC Radio Scotland an awful lot perhaps not someone that's uh, too well known outside of Scotland but uh, the BBC Radio Scotland commentator David Begg um, was brilliant obviously it's different 
um, doing TV to ra- compared to radio, but he just seemed to be able to bring games to life. Something he said uh, was very important on radio, which I think people forget, is giving the score. You know, he used to give out the score regularly. That adds to the suspense. It tells you where everyone's at. But he, he said um, one of the things he was told or advice he was given was that it's about light and shade. That you're, uh, there's a rhythm to it and you're painting a picture almost. If uh, you're too high all the time, too intense, viewers are going to struggle with that. And if it's uh, too dull, you don't get too excited when something exciting happens, people are going to switch off as well. So it's uh, about striking that balance. I do, yeah. I, li- I lived, I I lived in uh, in Paris for a few years, so I was on, uh, I was on TV once with Thierry Roland. I can tell you, uh, Stefan. For Irish viewers, he was basically the French Jimmy McGee, someone I liked, or, or, or a piece of commentary that I absolutely loved. Um, painful for you, Stefan, was the uh, two thousand and six um, World Cup final. Thierry uh, Giladi was commentating the game on French TV. It was, you know, tragic. He died very young, just a couple of years after. But his, I, I just found his, you know, that balance of being a commentator or trying to be impartial and then just saying what you see almost, that headbutt from Zidane and, and, and Giladi uh, watching the replay. And just, it's even if you don't know French, it's worth looking up because I just found it so good. It's just... You know the the line "Passa Zinedine pas aujourd'hui." You know, not not that Zinedine, not today, not now, not after everything you've done. I just thought it captured the moment so well. So uh, they they would be uh, my favourites, along with Peter Brackley, who brought the world of uh, Italian football to life for me uh, on Channel Four for uh, a lot of years. Well, honestly, when I was growing up, the only thing I cared about was watching a game of football, especially considering we didn't get too many on television back in the 80s. So I can't say that I had a favorite commentator or something like that in those days. And later, when I started working uh, on television, we were voicing this European football show program. It was a weekly program. And the English commentator on it was Peter Brackley. So he was probably the first English commentator I, I could listen to more or less regularly and he was very good and later when I had a chance you know, to watch Sky I'd say Martin Tyler really liked Martin Tyler of all the commentators they had and I also want to mention here Derek Ray a Scottish commentator who used to work in the States but then he was on BT commentating on the Scottish League as well and he he's a huge Bundesliga fan and even though I'm not, you know, I I can really feel that passion he's got for German uh, football. And also, in a way, he's an example of, for a- anyone who wants to do this, uh, of how you have to get into it, how you need to prepare, because uh, he knows the language, he travels uh, to Germany, and he goes to football, like to second division games sometimes, just because he likes it. You know, he's like culturally within the um, country, footballistically speaking. And I'd say those three of English-speaking commentators. But I also want to mention, because again, I, when I started watching Argentinian football, a lot of it, and it was one of the ways to learn the language as well, of course. There in South America, just like in uh, Spain, they have two people. Most of the time they have two people commentating on it. So for a 
commentator is such, it is a bit easier because there is someone you know who's telling people who's got the ball and who's doing this and that, and he's got time to see, to analyze, and then uh, say something. So there are a lot of great, really great commentators in Argentina. Some of them former players, some of them journalists, and the uh, same goes for Spain. There are a lot of uh, excellent commentators who played the game professionally, or there are some journalists who are also doing it, a great job of it. But I'd say if we're talking about yeah, English speaking commentators, I, I'd go for Peter Brackley, Martin Tyler, and Derek Gray. Yeah, Derek Gray is up there for me as well, actually. Brilliant. Did did a really good podcast. I can't remember where it was, um, but he spoke about how he feels like he's he's talking to one viewer, and that's the way you you focus on it and and not get too caught up in everything. Also talked about how you have to protect your own voice. You can't be going out the night before a commentary. You have to prepare like a player would. And um, something that was very interesting for me as well. He he spoke about um, ringing embassies to ask for pronunciations which shows you the lengths he goes to in terms of uh yes it was it was before 1994 world cup i think he said he was calling the embassy of saudi arabia or something like that yeah but yeah it's also i related to that because also a big thing for me and uh, and will can uh, testify that sometimes there is an irish player in the lineup or on the bench for an english club I, i i would check how, how do you pronounce that name or that last name, even though probably by now I could have figured it out myself? I'd still rather ask someone who certainly knows. I mean, I live in the area currently where he's from, but I, I cannot understand how Porig Armand's name gets appallingly mangled because even in Wales, um, a lot of the Welsh correspondents seem to give it a French pronunciation, which I've never quite been able to to understand because all you have to do is I mean surely in League 2 access isn't that difficult to just try and get Borigamond just to say what his name is I, I always do like it when if clubs are doing their own interviews where they allow the player to say his own name it's not always possible of course but if there are some sort of self-made videos that players put up where they actually say their own name as was the case with me for you know Antwerp's Israeli player Leo Rafaelov there is a, a video that he does when he joined Antwerp where he actually says his name because we were advised previously that his name was pronounced differently but in terms of Derek Ray um, it's funny I actually remember his first commentaries for BBC Radio Scotland because it was back in the age, the five years when English clubs were banned from Europe and the early rounds of European competition, BBC Radio 2, who used to do all the football, the live football on a national basis back then, well, they wouldn't cover the opening rounds unless it was a particularly big game. So that would mean they would have no live football on that particular night. So you'd find yourself tuning to BBC Radio Scotland and they'd uh, a veteran commentator, mid to late 80s, who'd been going for many years called David Francie, who was wonderful. And again, wonderful voice, brilliant tone to his voice. And again, add a lot of drama to his live commentaries. But there was a period when he got quite ill. So... Derek Ray was drafted in at the age of 19, but he had an amazing voice even then. He sounded like as if he was in his 30s or 40s. It was a wonderful deep voice. He'd a terrific way of phrasing. There was a, a tremendous quality. Um, I think the best commentators, they're not the star. The football is the star. It's all about where the ball is, who's got it, what's happening. But as I said with Peter Jones, the way that it was done, 
the detail, not just of what was happening on the pitch, but off the pitch, being able to build the atmosphere for people unable to watch it being radio, I, I think was a very key thing. And like things moved very quickly for Derek after that because he was on TV within a couple of seasons, then moved to the States when I think he was in his mid-twenties and developed a very big reputation there with ESPN over you know, 15, 20 years. Then obviously came back to, I think it was ESPN after Satanta UK, unfortunately, hit the buffers, who had a couple of good years working for on uh, South American football. But also Martin Tyler, like for the UK, like they got Italian football properly in 1992 with Football Italia, which just everything about it, James Richardson hosting it, the experts that they got in, the likes of Paul Elliott, Ray Wilkins, Luther Blissett. It was almost the perfect coverage. I think along with Sky's coverage of Spanish football, which they had for something like 20 years, it was just everything about it was right. There was a lot of thought, a lot of detail went into it. And it wasn't just about the big clubs, the big names. They would tell you the stories of, you know, the bottom half of the table and the Leches and the Palmas when they were small and the background of what was happening at, at Fiorentina. But for three seasons prior to that, we actually got in Ireland, Martin Tyler on Italian football. It was decided in the run-up to Italian 90 that they would try Monday night highlights from Italy. It was a league which certainly at the time in the English-speaking world had a reputation of being you know, really dull and the games were nil-nil or if a team would score early, it would be one-nil. They defend the league and so on. And then we actually got to watch the football and it was football with basically the best players in the world. I've spent a little bit of the last two weeks sort of watching the, the highlights compilations that were sent out by the company that used to do it at the time with Martin Tyler and Peter Brackley commentating. It was different to Football Italia, but it was wonderful. It was a terrific window on, at the time, what was definitely the best football in the world. And I, I think it punctured a lot of people's preconceptions and misconceptions about what Serie A was about because it was amazing. You Like the AC Milan team at the time, which had obviously the three Dutch into Milan, with the three Germans, they brought over Klinsmann, Bremen, Matthias, Hullitz, Reichard and Van Basten at Milan. Easily one of the greatest sides we've ever seen. But also like Rui Barros was in Italy at the time. Attilio Lombardo at Sampdoria. You had Kinigia, obviously, doing brilliant things at Fiorentina. And it was a great era. And to have three seasons of that with Martin Tyler prior to the era that a lot of people in, in the UK would remember from 1992, when obviously Paul Gascoigne joined over, which was the main reason why uh, Channel 4 decided to go for Italian football at the time. It, it, great days. Coming back uh, to pronunciations, Will, I know this is a, a bit of a tangent, but um, it just struck me, you know, people have different opinions on whether you should... Uh, get the pronunciation exactly right the way it is in the country where they're from i think my personal opinion is we should at least try if 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 we're able to pronounce it if it makes sense and i think that's brought home watching uh irish players in england um you know keith fahey being pronounced as fahey and stuff like this but the uh, most recent example is matt doherty of wolves um and it seems to me that every second week his name is um is butchered once once on match of the day i saw you know this wasn't a commentator it was a pundit but in the same highlight show his name was pronounced three different ways doherty 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 so i think it's important to to at least try and get the names right as well 
you you do your best because there's a lot of what you would call a case by case basis. I, it's funny. I was somebody pointed out to me um, when I was mentioning on Twitter about you know the Italian football coverage that we had on Irish TV in the early nineties before Channel Four took over. Uh, the production, not just for them, but they they also used to provide uh, for some like six or seven years international highlights also. So the, like the Monday night programme in RTE after three seasons then became Football Italia with Gary Bloom and Peter Brackley. But we never used to get the presentation, but we used to eventually get the, the Channel 4 commentary. I, I was so looking forward to the very first game they did, which was uh, Lazio Sampdoria in September 92. And I'd have watched it live on S4C, which was the Welsh equivalent of Channel 4, except for the fact that it was All-Ireland final day. So, I mean, it was watching the All-Ireland final instead. And, and, you know, we actually didn't, believe it or not, have a video recorder at the time in our house. So I said, OK, well, I'll, I'll sit down on the Monday night. RT will be showing the highlights. So they'll definitely be showing uh, Sampdoria against Lazio because they trailed that they were going to be taking uh, the Channel 4 coverage. But what we got instead was highlights of AC Milan's 1-0 win with Gary Bloom, which was a bit of a disappointment. And the Sampdoria, it was just the goals, a voiced goals roundup. So... Unfortunately, that's what we got for the first season. Channel 4 would have the best game live, so you'd have to try and watch that. And then the RT highlights on Monday night would be the secondary game, which would, I mean, as they said quite clearly, it was it was voiced the day after in studio in London. Things definitely kicked on from the second season when they decided to do the presentation with James Richardson live in Italy. It was absolutely fantastic. And then we would get proper highlights of two games in Ireland. Sorry, Will, are you talking about Sampdoria Lazio from 1992? Yeah, 3-3. Yeah. Three, three. It was 3-3. Yeah, three, three. It was door, door, typically Italian 3-3 three, three draw with four goals being scored in the first 38 minutes. But see, it's interesting because that had a viewership of something like three or four million. One of the reasons why Channel 4 waded in to take Italian football live that season was that live league football had gone off terrestrial TV in England and it had only been going realistically for about nine seasons at that stage that have moved over to the new Sky Sports. So ITV regionally were showing what would now be championship matches, games from the second division, but like they weren't networked or anything like that. After years of very successful network television, it um, ITV sort of hit the buffers a little bit, if you like, football-wise. Michael Grade, who was head of Channel 4, very, very innovative, having worked for various different channels, was at BBC prior to that, went to Channel 4, went back to BBC, was at ITV for a while. And a lot of the best things about their schedules, even today, will have come from decisions that he would have made back in the 80s and 90s when he was on various different channels. But apparently he was at a a Channel 4 board meeting and a documentary had been made by Chrysalis TV about Paul Gascoigne's recuperation from injury, how he was dealing with it mentally, um, how he was dealing with the move to Italy, having left Tottenham and having been out of football for a year. And then... He sort of started asking them at this meeting, well, could we actually get the rights for Paul Gascoigne's debut with with Lazio at the start of the 92-93 season? So they put a bid in for that one game. They thought it might get them good viewing figures. And Serie A came back to them and said, well, you can have the game, but you'd have to buy the entire league and you have to show games every week. Michael Grade said, yeah, why don't we do that? And like it kicked off 
I think, a very successful 10 years. I think the final season or two, unfortunately, they'd lost interest. The main games by that stage had been moved to Sunday night and they weren't going to interrupt their Sunday night schedule to show live Italian football. So they would show them on a Wednesday night as part of Under the Moon, which I think was a brilliant, groundbreaking sports show hosted by Danny Kelly. And then, you know, the final two hours of what would be a four-hour extravaganza of sport starting at around 11.30 a night would finish with the with the main Sunday night Italian game. And it definitely revolutionised in Britain, at least, the way that overseas football was covered. Um, Sky then came on board with the Spanish football, which they covered so well for many years. They covered Bundesliga for a little while. Basically, I think off the back of that, all of us have a job, pretty much. You just have to also explain, because maybe some people don't even realise that back then, every single game from any European league was a gift. It wasn't like, you know, you could watch any league you wanted any time. No, it was something absolutely special. That's why, you know, it's still in the memory. That's why it sticks uh, to your memory and you remember those people even who commentated on it and those who played and the results. You probably know more of those results and remember more of those results and you remember all the games you commentated on a couple of months ago. Yeah, but one of the things I used to love watching every week was we had Sports Stadium on RTE, which was the equivalent of Grandstand, and they would do a European football review every Saturday of the main sort of midweek games uh, from Europe, if it was a European Cup or a Cup Winners' Cup week, or they would show, alternatively, goals from the previous weekend all around Europe. And Grandstand used to do the same sports night, midweek sports special on BBC and ITV, respectively, used to do the same. And I think, actually, we've probably lost a lot now that we can watch every game from every country pretty much live. It's why there's been, I guess, a bit of a novelty about the Belarusian League, in that it's something, literally, it's a league that nobody knows anything about, whereas, you know, Serie A, Bundesliga... You know, even Belgium, even the Dutch, which ranked down a little bit outside the top five. Belgium, I think, is ranked about eighth and Eredivisie about 14th. Is that, you know, the average person, if you've an interest in football, then you've got all this football, all this knowledge at your fingertips. And in a way, a lot of things aren't a mystery anymore. I, I think I had a big benefit of working on one of the last major events people in our part of the world wouldn't have known a huge amount about when I was asked by Satanta UK to work on the Copa Libertadores in, in 2008, ended up working on it for 10 years. And it was just a window on the world that people wouldn't have seen before. You, I mean, we had Neymar's first year in 2011, having been so incredible in the South American Youth Championship. We'd heard a bit about him. And then he in, helped Santos, helped inspire Santos to winning the Libertadores that year. And, you know, a lot of mystery, I'm afraid, in football has gone these days, apart from, you know, how to pronounce different names <laughs> well, i give you an will i give you a, a name to pronounce daniel sinani do you know him yeah the new signing of norwich city exactly to the launch of luxembourg exactly yeah. is where is he going to norwich exactly first signing and people are talking you know there won't be any transfer you know this um this year Here you go that's the first one of the season or the coming season i could go on all day you know, on the we could have, to, you know, we could have been talking as well about the different style of commentary from one country to the other one, from South America to the North America. I mean, the MLS. If you look at the uh, commentators from the MLS, uh, driven by stats like the NBA, the NFL, so it's different style, different uh, 
way of approaching the, the job. But uh, let's go back to football. That's it for now. The usual appeals follow. Please like and subscribe if you've enjoyed this and actually do it even if you haven't. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>